Good morning, everyone. So glad to see all of you here this morning. The title of today's message is The Excellencies of Christ. And my intention and hope with this message is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that I would be able to bring your mind and your thoughts into an awe and wonder of the excellencies and perfections of Christ. That is my prayer that this morning that we would be able to accomplish that. I would imagine that if everything could be written and spoken of the perfections of Christ, the world itself would not be able to contain all the books that would be written. And so this morning I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface um, of this uh, amazing topic. And um, I would say that each one of the excellencies and perfections that we will even look at this morning, each one really deserves its own sermon. But um, we will dive into this by turning to Hebrews chapter 1, is our primary text this morning. So it asks that you would turn to the book of Hebrews, to chapter 1, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But, in contrast, of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness, beyond your companions. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all, speaking of angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? May God bless the reading of his word. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before you as your people whom you have called out of darkness into light. You have transferred us into the kingdom of your dear Son.
And we gather together this morning to contemplate and to meditate and to focus our mind and our thoughts on Christ and on his perfections and his excellencies. Lord, I, I pray that we would feel and truly in the depths of our soul see Christ for who he is and the beauty that he has revealed to us and has been revealed to us in Christ. We pray, Lord, that with this revelation, with this, these thoughts of you, that we would then in light of it live our lives in such a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. We pray for your blessing upon the words this morning, that they would be according to your word, that anything that comes from me would fall on deaf ears, but anything that is according to the word of God, that it would go forth and it would accomplish the purpose for which you have it. So bless our time this morning. We pray that you would bless the proclamation of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we uh, delve into this text, I do want to divert just briefly to the book of Revelation. So I would ask if you would turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is the Apostle John's uh, vision of a worship ceremony that occurs in heaven. And in the beginning of the chapter, he is, we find the Apostle John weeping because there can be found no one who is worthy to open the scroll. So in starting at verse 5 of Revelation chapter 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And before the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So in this text here, in this heavenly vision, we first are introduced to the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then when the Apostle John looks at the throne, what does he see? He doesn't see a lion, but he sees a lamb standing as if it was slain. This lion and lamb is the person of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards says this, he says, In the person of Christ we see infinite glory and lowest humility coming together paradoxically and meeting in this one person. That is why here in this text we see Jesus being both a lion and a lamb at the same time. He is a conjunction of the diverse excellencies of both a human and a divine nature. Edwards goes on to say, he says, A lion is a devourer, one that is able and desires to make terrible slaughter of others. No creature falls more easily prey to a lion than a lamb. The lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience. Beside the excellent nature of the creature is good for food and yielding that which is fit for our clothing and being suitable to be offered in sacrifice to God. But in Christ Jesus we see both. 
because the diverse excellencies of both the lion and the lamb are wonderfully met in him. So we have in Christ all the perfections of God revealed to us. We have conjoined in the one person of the Son of God, both perfect God and perfect man. The Son is most excellent in his person and in his natures and in his actions. As I was studying this, I was reminded, years ago I did uh, a lot of reading uh, in the early church fathers, and uh, I remembered um, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, who lived just, or actually died, just shortly after um, uh, the beginning of the 100 ADs. Uh, he was martyred in Rome, and on the way to Rome, he wrote, I believe it was seven letters, seven epistles to the different churches, and he wrote one to the Ephesian church, and he said this, and we know that there are many in the uh, academia and stuff that say things like, well, the, um, looking at Christ as God was something that developed much later and came about at a much later time, but we see here very, very soon after the completion of the New Testament, we see Ignatius here saying this about our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this at the beginning of his epistle to the Ephesians. He says, we, also, we have also as a physician the Lord, our God, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son and Word before time began, who afterwards became also man of Mary the Virgin, for the Word was made flesh. Being incorporeal, he was in the body. Being impassable, he was in a passable body. Being mortal, immortal, he was in a mortal body. Being life, he became subject to corruption. That he might free our souls from death and corruption and heal them and might restore them to health when they were diseased with ungodliness and wicked lusts. So we see here Ignatius talking about the diverse attributes of Christ. We see his perfections in his divine nature and his perfections in his human nature come together in one person, in the one person of our Lord Jesus Christ. In theology, we refer to this joining of the two natures, the hypostatic union. It just means that within the one person of Christ, there are two subsistences, two natures. In Christ, we have this perfect union between the divine and human attributes in one person with no confusion or intermingling of these properties. There have been many heresies and false teachings about Christ, many beginning in the early church, and the early church had to deal with this. The Gnostics, for example, uh, would claim that all of Christ's human attributes were absorbed in the divine and resulting in Christ just seeming to be uh, he was just a mirage. He was not really there. Um, he just appeared to be in a human form, but he was not really a human form. The early church also rejected, uh, rejected the teaching of Eutychus, who taught that the human nature of Christ was overcome by the divine and that Christ had a human nature, but it was unlike the rest of humanity. The human nature was absorbed in the divine and became an entirely different and new nature. We know that this is not according to Scripture because in the very book of Hebrews where we just read in chapter 2, it says, therefore, he had to be make like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So we know that Jesus Christ is made like us in every respect, yet without sin. 
as the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 3 as well. So we know that he is truly man. He is truly like us. Another heresy that was taught in the early church was referred to as Nestorianism. It was a doctrine that there are, instead of one person having two natures, it was that there were actually two persons in Christ. Jesus somehow had some sort of multiple personality disorder. Um, but Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he said that none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory, the person of the eternal Son of God, was the one who was crucified. He was actually crucified. So, as believers in the Word of God, we should hold to this perfect balance which the Scripture gives to us that He was an always like us, yet without sin, and that the eternal person of the Son added to Himself in the Incarnation a human nature like us so that He could be our kinsman redeemer. A.W. Pink says this, The grandest of all privileges which believers are capable of, either in this world or the next, is to behold the glory, the personal and official excellencies of Christ, now by faith, but then by sight. I know that sometimes in uh, Reformed churches we can be referred to as the frozen chosen, but that should not be those of us who have been redeemed from a life of destruction, it should bring emotion to us. It should bring a, a tear to our eye. So, in the same way also, reflecting on the excellencies and perfections of Christ should cause us to break out in praise and worship of Him. The thought of Christ should invoke an emotion in our soul. In Christ, we see both infinite highness and infinite condescension. Infinite glory and infinite humility. So I'm going to divide the sermon today into three sections. In the first one, we will look at the divine excellencies of Christ. And in the second, we will look at his human excellencies. And then we will end with a practical application of these Job says in Job 26, 14, he goes, The thunder of his power, who can understand? Who can understand the holiness and perfections of God? There is an infinite chasm between us and God. How can that gap be bridged between the creator and the creature? So who will ascend into heaven to reach God? There is... None of us that will be able to accomplish this. Not only our creatureliness prevents this, that God must condescend, but the gap is even made wider with our sin. Our sin makes it even greater. So we have, we have no hope. We have no hope of attaining this infinite, perfect, holy God unless He Himself chooses to condescend Himself to us. So in the eternal counsels of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the covenant of redemption, the Son said, Here am I, send me. I will go. And we see here in Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 2, 
that he has spoken to us by his son. This is contrasted with the prophets of old, that he is the son of God. He has eternally been the son. He has been eternally begotten of the father. This is an eternal relationship that existed before time, before creation. Both son and father existed, and the son has the same eternality as the father. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 here that he is the creator of all things. So Christ in his divine nature has created everything. In um, John chapter 1 verse 3, John says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. This excludes anything from not being created by Christ. He is the creator indeed of all things. It says in verse 10 of our text, it says, You, O Lord, speaking of Christ, this is God the Father speaking to the Son, You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. I still remember when I first came to Christ, it dawned on me that Jesus Christ had made me. And it, it just it astounded me. I still remember that with distinctness that when I recognized that, that Jesus Christ was the creator, he, was, he made me, he owned me, he could do what he willed with me because he had made me. In Hebrews here 1 verse 3, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. The glory of the Father is invisible until it shines forth in Christ. John, when he writes that prologue in John chapter 1, he says towards the end of it, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So we come to know who God is in Christ. In Christ, we see the fullness of God revealed to us. Uh, John uses the word there, he has made him known. He has exegeted him, is uh, the Greek word behind their word. Uh, the same, the same uh, Greek root where we get the word exegete, to explain, to make known, that's the word here. So he has revealed the Father to us. He has explained the Father to us in his incarnation. He has shown us the Father. This is why Jesus said in John 14, he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Why do you say, Philip, show us the Father? You ha have you not been long enough with me to see that he who has seen me has seen the Father? So he is the radiance of the glory of God. When we look out in creation, we see that creation shows us a glimpse of the glory of God. We can see it in created things like you know, a sunset, the beauty of a, of a flower. We can see it in the intricate and precise movements of our solar system to even the, the complexity of a single living cell. We can see these things, but these are just in part. They are but a shadow. In Christ, we see the fullness of God revealed. All of God revealed to us. We find this in Christ. Creation is but a shadow 
But in Christ, we see God fully revealed to us. We see all the perfections, excellencies, and beauty of God shown to us. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, here it says that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. This uses the word character, which means a precise reproduction in every respect, a facsimile. Kind of like a signet ring puts the impression into the soft wax. It's an exact replica or image of what is the ring. And that is what the Son is. He is an exact image of the infinite nature of the Father. So if the Father is immutable, the Son is immutable. If the Father is unchanging uh, and eternal, the Son is unchanging and eternal. If He knows all things, if He is omniscient and omnipotent, the Father is, well then, so is the Son. For He is an exact representation of the very image of the Father. This makes the Son to be of the same essence and substance of the Father. This makes Him to be one with the Father. In verse 3 of our text as well, He holds together the universe. It says here that He upholds the universe by the word of His power or the power of His word. He does so, Jesus Christ does so faithfully and immutably. It does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because he is the one who upholds our universe, we can actually even measure things in, in the scientific realm. We call them laws. Why do we call them laws? We call them that because Jesus is faithful. He doesn't change. He keeps them the same. So without Christ, we have no justification or grounding at all for Morality, ethics, knowledge, whether we can know anything, the laws of logic, the laws of nature, science, mathematics, these only make sense if Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. From a secular and non-Christian worldview, these things, well, they're just that way. We don't know why, they just are. But these things are that way because Jesus Christ holds them together. In Hebrews 1, 10 through 11, let's just look at that. It says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. So we see here that Jesus is contrasted with creation. He is eternal. The creation is temporal. He is the same. He is immutable, but they will perish. They will wear out like a garment. They change, but he remains unchanging. Well, now let's look at some of the human excellencies of Christ. Let's turn to that passage this morning that um, Brother Mick had us read, Philippians chapter 2, so let's turn there. Philippians chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 3. We see here the infinite condensation of Christ. 
This is actually, uh, this, this passage of scripture is often referred to as the Carmen Christi, which just means hymn of Christ. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, thought of by, by many that this was an early hymn that Paul was quoting. Beginning in, at verse 3 of Philippians chapter 2, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not at his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself being by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see here that Jesus voluntarily, verse 7, emptied himself. This was not something that was done to him. He did it of his own accord and his own will. He emptied himself. He did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he let it go in order to be found in the form of a servant. Infinite condescension. Christ condescends himself to take notice of beggars. We see in Luke 16, 22. He condescends himself to, to poor men. He himself doesn't come into the earth in a king's palace, but instead he's born in a stable. Christ condescends to people of the most despised nations of men. Tells us, Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Christ comes for all men. The most despised of the world. 1 Corinthians 1.28 says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, things that are. So Christ has lowered himself to us, to the most despised of us, to bring salvation. He takes, notice Christ in his incarnation, how he takes gracious note of little children. We see that Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them. Christ condescends to children. He condescends to save sinners. This saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He condescended himself to save sinners. Let's go back to our text in Hebrews. Going back to verses 1 and 2, we see that Christ condescends himself to bring the final and complete word of God to man. The son here at the beginning of the chapter is contrasted with the prophets of old. Because the son and his revelation to us, our position is superior to those that lived under the dispensation of the Old Testament. Now the gospel has been fully and clearly revealed in Christ. It, we are no longer confined to the types and shadows, but now we have the glorious and full and complete revelation in the Son. 
Long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Calvin says that there is no longer any reason to expect new revelation because the Son himself has made the final revelation in these last days. The Son has not brought the word in part as it was in the Old Testament, but he has brought it to its final conclusion. Therefore, we ought not to expect new prophets and apostles to bring us more revelation to this final and concluded word. Christ, as he is most excellent and perfect in all that he does, he completed it. He brought it to a perfect and complete end. The Jews were satisfied with their partial, incomplete revelation, and were not looking to the fuller revelation in Christ. And today, frankly, the opposite evil prevails. Men are unsatisfied with the full and perfect revelation of Christ and seek more. They look for God to speak to them outside of his final and complete word. They turn to ecstatic utterances and gibbering and jabbering and prophets who continually, repeatedly get their prophecies wrong. Unlike the prophets of Scripture, who never got anything wrong. We see in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 here, again, that he is appointed the heir of all things. So in his condescension, he is the heir of all things. He says in uh, verse 6, and this is tied in, in fact, with the term heir, in verse 6, he says he brings the firstborn into the world. Now, there has been a lot of theological football that has been made by, in particular, the cults over this term firstborn. But in Colossians first, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What this means is that he is the heir of all things. He is the one who inherits all things. If we look at a couple texts in the Old Testament, the, the, the word actually used here is prototokos, which means firstborn, but it is a title. It is, not, um, it is used in, in two different ways in the scriptures. It is used of the one who is born first, uh, but it is also used in the form of a title. And let's look at a couple of those examples. In Jeremiah 31.9, it says, With weeping they shall come, and with pleas of mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am the father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Well, now, was Ephraim actually the firstborn? No, it was Manasseh, right? So, Ephraim is bestowed the title of the firstborn. We see that in Exodus, in speaking to Pharaoh, Moses was instructed to say, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. Israel was Jacob, right? Was Jacob the firstborn? No. It was Esau. So we see the title of Prototokos being given here. In Psalm 89, 27, and this is a messianic psalm, it says, I will make him the firstborn, the prototokos, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so 
That is what Jesus is being referred to in verse 10 here, or I'm sorry, in verse 6 here, when he brings the firstborn into the world, and in Colossians 1.15, where he is called the firstborn of all creation, it means that he is the one to inherit. He is the one to receive all things. So this firstborn does not mean first created. It is a position. It is a title. No good can be, a found, can be found apart from Christ because he is the heir of all things. We are all under his authority. He inherits all things. And so therefore, all things belong to him. If we jump down to verse 9, we do see this perfect condescension shown to us. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We see that in Christ's incarnation and his condescension that he has purified us from sin. In uh, Hebrews 1.3 there, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The work of Christ in our salvation is perfect. He accomplishes the intention of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in coming into this world. He has no failures. Jesus Christ does not try to save. He saves. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, that he will save his people from their sins. We have to ask ourselves, did when Jesus ascended to the Father, had he accomplished what Matthew says that he came to do? Had he saved his people from their sins? In Colossians chapter 2, it says that what he did on the cross canceled the record of debt which was against us. He nailed it to the cross completing it. We know that Jesus on the cross said, to Telestai it is finished, meaning that it was complete. It was done. The payment had been made. The wrath of God had been propitiated for us. And by a single offering, he had perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we cannot hold to any position that says Jesus Christ tries to save Jesus Christ absolutely and perfectly in his excellencies absolutely does save. He is also exalted to the right hand of the Father. We see here in verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as a result of him completing his perfect work. Because of his perfect and excellent obedience, 
He is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He is there interceding for us. He is interceding his blood on behalf of us as his children. In verse 9, the same thing is repeated to us by the writer of Hebrews. It says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So we see Christ exalted and raised up, and we see him anointed as a result of his loving righteousness and hating wickedness. The name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Who's it theirs? It's the angels. But his name is more excellent, and that is because his name is, he is a son. The Jews had the notion that angels had delivered the law to Moses. They had lifted up and elevated angels in many cases, and to a higher degree than they ought to have. And the writer of Hebrews corrects this notion here to say that the son is far, far above any angel. For he constantly contrasts things with angelic beings. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. We see here in verse 13, if we drop down to verse 13, we see that, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is Jesus Christ reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the perfect and most excellent King and Lord. In Psalm chapter 2, this, uh, this great psalm of an inter-dialogue between the members of the Trinity... In Psalm chapter 2, let's just turn to there. Let's, let's look at this king that the Lord has set up. Psalm chapter 2, let's look at verses 6 through 12. Beginning at verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly Kindled, blessed are those who take refuge in him. As we look at all the kingdoms of the world, we see them rise, we see them fall. We see forms of government collapse. We see them not lasting eternally. But the, this is in contrast with the rulership of Christ. Christ will rule forever. His rulership will never end. And we as Christians should not be looking to earthly governments as our solution, but we should look to Christ and his government as our solution. He is, he is absolutely perfect in his dominion and rule. The only kingdom in this world that will last forever is the kingdom of Christ.
So as we look at Christ and we look at his, his perfect divinity and his perfect humanity, what does this mean for us? What, what does this mean practically to us? It's, it's a great theological truth, but what does this mean for us in our everyday life? As we, you know, we go to work tomorrow, we go get the groceries, we um, raise our children, we, um, we do all these things. What, what about these, these beauties and perfections of Christ? What, how do they apply to us in that situation? Well, one thing is, is that because he is unchanging, we can believe his promises. I mean, he tells us that in this world you will have trouble or tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We can believe that because of who he is in his person. He is not just a mere human, but he is God himself. We can trust that he will go and prepare a place for us. And he will come again. And he will take us to himself, that where he is, there we can be also. We can believe that. We can trust in that. We can take it to the bank. He promises us, in John 6, he says that whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Not may have eternal life in the future if you, you know, you do the right things. No, he who believes in me will have eternal life, a present tense possession. And we can believe that because Jesus Christ is true. He is faithful. He tells us also in that same chapter that he loses nothing of all that the Father has given to him, but will raise it on the last day. It is a great confidence to know that if we have been given by the Father to the Son and we have come to the Son in faith, that we will be raised on the last day. It is not based upon our own merit and our own works, but it's based upon the merit and the works of Christ. He has perfectly done it for us. And so we can have confidence. We can go throughout our daily lives. And when we sin, we can confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He promises also us that he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. They will never perish. No one can come along and snatch you out of his hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This truth right here is based upon the fact that I and the Father are one. It is because Jesus Christ is one in essence with the Father that we can have great confidence that no one can overcome this. No one can, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Since Christ is most excellent and perfect in his condescending work of saving us, we can have confidence that that one-time sacrifice actually accomplished our salvation. That he perfected us. We don't perfect ourselves. 
His righteousness becomes ours, and it's a perfect righteousness. He, um, there in Hebrews, it says that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This is Christ, and that has been given to us. Hasn't there been times where you have looked into your own heart and you realized that you hated righteousness and you loved wickedness? That's the opposite of Christ. But now the obedience of Christ, which is loving righteousness and hating wickedness, has become yours in Christ through faith. And because of this, we can have great confidence that our sin has been dealt with. Because he is the one who did it perfectly, and he did so on our behalf. John tells us in uh, 1 John chapter 4 that his son is a propitiation for our sins. Meaning that he propitiates the wrath of God on our behalf. That means the wrath of God has been appeased. If the wrath of God has been appeased for us, then there is no wrath for us to suffer. Christ has done it for us. So we can have great confidence in our daily Christian life because of the excellencies and the perfections of Christ. And because of this, our hearts should just break forth in worship and awe and wonder of Christ. That he is perfect in all that he has done. So with that, let's, um, let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, that you are the perfect Savior. You are most excellent in all that you have done. Your perfections are beautiful. And we know that we have confidence to come before the throne of grace because of this. We thank you, O Lord, for this great salvation that you have perfectly wrought in our hearts. We pray that we would praise you and glorify you for eternity because of it. We pray that in our own hearts that Christ would be elevated, that he would be glorified, and that his name would be praised, and that we would with confidence go out into the world through our co-workers, our family, our friends, whoever it is, and proclaim the excellencies of Christ because you are good to us. So Lord, I just pray that you would be with each and every one of us as we go from here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.